I'm your host, Heather Evans, and today we are discussing the politics of natural disasters. I'm joined today by two guests. Ashley Ross is an assistant professor at Texas A&M University at Galveston. She's a political scientist by training. Her research explores hazard and disaster issues from a social and political perspective. Her book, Local Disaster Resilience, Administrative and Political Perspectives from Rutledge in 2013, analyzed disaster resilience related to Hurricane Katrina and the Deepwater Horizon oil spill among U.S. Gulf Coast counties. Her recent studies have evaluated communities affected by Hurricane Harvey in Texas, comparing rural urban capacities for resilience. Much of her research examines public perceptions related to hazard governance, including climate change and hazard mitigation. Abby Hotard is a doctoral student at Texas A&M University Galveston. She earned her master's degree from the same program and holds a bachelor's degree in coastal environmental science from Louisiana State University. She studies choices individuals and communities make, including relocation and buyouts, when managing the risk they face posed by natural hazards. Prior to her doctoral studies, she worked for the Environmental Protection Agency Gulf of Mexico program and the Federal Emergency Management Agency Response Geospatial Office, where she developed a storm surge loss estimation tool for use during disaster response. Let me begin by thanking both of you for being on our program today. I thought with what has been happening in our country over the past week, this was a timely topic to discuss. Hurricane Ida was the second most damaging hurricane to strike Louisiana right behind Katrina. So Ashley, we're, we'll kick it off. Um, in my introductory course here at the college, I often begin with a discussion about how everything all around us is political from the clothing we wear to the roads we drive on to the food we eat. So along those lines, are disasters political? Sure. I think um, one of my favorite definitions of politics is who gets what, when, where, and how. So it's fundamentally about resources and how we distribute those resources in our communities and society. And in that sense, absolutely, disasters are political. But we also have to take a step back and think about the life of disasters or the cycle of disasters how when a disaster hits, we have a response phase followed by a recovery phase. Um, before a disaster event, communities mitigate risk, meaning that they create projects and public work programs to do things that buffer against hazards and they prepare for disaster events specifically. And within those different phases or cycles of the disaster, we see politics heightened or, or not as important. I would think that particularly in the immediate response phase to a disaster when individuals are living through an event together and re responding to it, things are more social than they are political. So we see all the time in disasters, and Abby can speak to it as someone who's been through Hurricane Ida most recently, um, people helping one another and people lending hands to one another, a lot of trust and reciprocity among individuals within communities. And in that way, disasters can bring out the best in some, right? Um, but we know when it comes to uh, policies and programs related to disasters that those decisions often become politicized. Um, the way that resources are distributed often because those financial resources are scarce. Um, governments can only do so much. Um, 
and decisions have to be made. So yes, in that sense, I think disasters definitely are political and we can talk about them through a lot of different political lenses. Yeah. And your research is really fascinating based on resilience. Your, your research focuses a lot on resilience. And I think sometimes when people hear that term, they're not really sure what that term means. Could you Mm -hmm. define that for us? Sure. So resilience um, is often thought about bouncing back. Um, We talk about bouncing back and in that sense, resilience can apply to everything from um, your psychology, your social bouncing back from a traumatic event um, to even uh, engineers study the resilience of metal and other properties and how it bounces back after stress. But the way that and, and that's a, a nice visual of resilience. But the way that I really like to define it is about the capacities for adaptation. Can we adapt? Adapt means can we learn? Can we anticipate future risk or disturbances or shocks? And when we're hit with the unexpected, can we, can we respond and adapt to it? And that fundamentally is what resilience is about in the way that I study it and in the way that it's applied to disasters. Now, one of the pieces of research you've recently done looks at rural communities and how they're different from urban communities. Could you share a little bit about that research? Sure. So whenever we talk about resilience, we talk about different components of resilience. So we measure it and analyze it and are able to quantify it in research by looking at social dimensions that are the way that people connect to one another, um, the way that they trust one another, the way they help one another. Other dimensions include um, human capital dimensions like education and knowledge, then there's finances, Um, then there's also some dimensions that deal with um, environmental conditions and even the built environment, so physical structures within a community and um, how that can be resilient or not. And so when we look at urban and rural settings, those different components vary considerably in terms of what we see in rural communities across the U.S. is populations tend to be less educated. They often earn lower incomes and have older homes. But what we also have learned uh, through the research that Abby and I actually conducted together um, is that rural communities do have a strong sense of place and a strong sense of connectedness with one another. And so when disasters happen, they're able to leverage resources that are diverse across their community to respond to a disaster together and help one another. And if you're from a small town, which I am, um, you know that you know everybody and you know what they do and potentially you know what equipment they might have for debris removal or what facilities they might have to house a family or a group of students, for example, that need to come back to school after a disaster. And so those that leveraging those resources is the important part of the connectedness among rural communities. And we see that, and, and we saw that after Hurricane Harvey and some communities that we studied in Texas, that doesn't take away from the fact that those communities do still need investment and they need relief dollars and they need capacity building in other ways in terms of being prepared and reducing and mitigating risk in their communities. But um, that kind of um, idea of of, uh, small towns and rural communities 
being about families and being about connectedness, um, we did see evident uh, after Hurricane Harvey. Yeah, you may have heard that here in Southwest Virginia last week, there was significant flooding in Hurley that was connected to Hurricane Ida. And right now, lawmakers are working on securing some federal funds for this area. Um, one person at this point, um, it's been confirmed that one person did die. Thousand people were without public water at one point and 20 homes were destroyed. The supervisor in Hurley said that the destruction there is about 10 times worse than the flood in 2002. So everyone is coming out to help those who are affected by the flooding now. And your research, as well as your research, Abby, speaks directly to this. So Abby, can you tell us a little bit about the research that you've done on people perhaps migrating away from areas where there are hazards? Sure. Um, so my research is very interested in the complicated question of where you live and why. Um, so when you think about these areas that have flooded again and again, or in places perhaps even like Hurley, that a flood like this is really rare and really shocking. How do these hazards play into the very personal decision of where you live and if you're willing to relocate and if you have the resources to relocate? Um, there are programs through the federal government that can help incentivize relocating um, through buying, buying out your property. Um, but we know that there's so much more to the decision for individuals and communities and where you live and why you have to think about what jobs are available, your families. Um, so it's, it's much harder to just um, kind of think about just moving away from hazards. There's a hazard, flooding, hurricanes, earthquakes, fires, they're all over the United States. And so uh, just relocating away from a hazard won't necessarily make you safer. Um, so that my research is really interested in um, how individuals and communities kind of think about these hazards and how to make a decision to be more resilient in the future, to bounce back better. Yeah, you, you point out something really interesting. And I hear people say this often where, oh, disaster management, that's just something that happens down on the coast. Well, that's not true, right? Disasters are happening everywhere, as, as I mentioned with Hurley and so forth. And that's connected, of course, to Hurricane Ida, but there are flooding, there are flooding issues here in southwestern Virginia all the time. We have communities that have even relocated entirely because of flooding and wildfires, as you mentioned. So this is something that extends farther than just the coast. Now, Ashley, with your research on um, social capital, how could we extend that to looking at the situation in Hurley? Well, I think that uh, what we're seeing in Hurley is what brings out the what disasters do is bring out the best in some people um, by getting them to unite, help one another with the resources that they have to rebuild. But the other thing is that disasters give us the opportunity to question some of the things that we take for granted about some of these questions that Abby is mentioning. Why do we live here? How do how do we interact and live with the environmental risks that are posed. I would think that Hurley probably has some hard questions to ask and uh, looking at why they might have been exposed to this flash flood and what that might mean in the future if they're exposed again. And depending on the damage for individual homeowners, whether they'll be rebuilding or not. And you know that requires a lot of social support. So the social capital isn't just during the response phase of a disaster, 
We need that trust among individuals, not just among friends and family, but among individuals in a community. Um, we also know that trust in government officials and representatives is important. There's different types of social capital, and there's been a lot of great research done on those different types, the bonding, close relationships, the bridging among diverse groups and society, and then the linking between individuals and their representatives. And what we know about all of that is those connections help us get connected to resources that we need across a disaster. And information is a resource. Uh, so is social support. So feeling emotionally supported through the decisions you have to make. And of course, um, things like financial resources are critical. So that social capital is so important for all of those decisions moving forward. And regardless of how a community answers or ask and answers the hard questions they're facing, what's important is to engage the full community in doing that so that no one's marginalized in the planning that happens for the future. Excellent. Yes, I, I think I think that's a fabulous answer. Thank you so much. So before we move on, I do have additional questions, but I wanted to let everyone know who may have just tuned in. This is Red, White, and Confused. I'm your host, Heather Evans, and we are joined today by two guests, Ashley Ross, who is an assistant professor at Texas A&M University in Galveston, and Abby Hotard, who is a doctoral student at Texas A&M University of Galveston. So Abby, I wanna come back to your really cool research on the characteristics that might be associated with someone moving away from a hazard or, or looking at a hazard differently, considering uprooting themselves and moving elsewhere. Would you like to share a little bit about what you found in your research regarding those, perhaps the demographics that are associated with those who, who do end up thinking more about those situations? Sure. Um, I would say a lot of it is pretty intuitive. If you think about who might be more mobile and being able to relocate to a new job or might have more um, resources, fluid to be able to relocate. So I found that older individuals and homeowners are less likely to relocate. And you can think about that makes sense because these individuals are likely very established in their community, um, have lived in the same place for longer. Um, might have resources tied up in their homes um, and wouldn't necessarily want to seek out a new job or settle in a new place in the future. But on the other hand, younger individuals um, or individuals with more resources are able to kind of think about uh, looking for another job in another community. An interesting finding to me was that um, we were talking about social capital earlier. I find that social capital actually increased your ability to relocate. And I think this has more to do with if you have more connections outside of your immediate community, you might be able to identify other places where you would feel more comfortable um, in settling. And so it, what I find in my research is that it's not just how you perceive hazards, so flooding, fires, et cetera. It's also your ability to make connections, the connections you already have um, that really kind of weigh into those decisions about where you settle. Yeah, I, and I was thinking about social capital as well in terms of having a community, not only those around you, because that's very important, but then also perhaps even an online community. And some of the areas here in Southwestern Virginia 
they lack internet access. Mm -hmm. And I hear people say often that they, they definitely would never leave their home, right? They've been here forever. And that's associated with the age component you found. Now, when we think about the politics of disasters, is there any partisan component to the idea of thinking about leaving one's area or, or is that mute? It, does it matter if you're a Democrat or Republican, whether you have thought about perhaps leaving an area that has a hazard? It's kind of fuzzy for us, but here's what we do know. It does matter how you perceive risk. And what we mean by that is potential danger. So if you're an individual and there's a battery of questions that we often ask in surveys about how you perceive flooding events and for us with coastal communities, hurricanes, how dangerous do you think these are? How much uh, potential do they have to damage things for your property and hurt your family and your community? We know, not just from our research, but a long tradition of research that if you think that you live in a risky place, you're going to take actions to make yourself more resilient. You're going to prepare better. You're going to invest in mitigation measures of your house, like elevating your house, um, and uh, retrofitting it for wind or flood. And you're also, I have found in my own work, um, likely to support community-wide mitigation measures more, like building levees or um, investing in green spaces that can absorb floodwaters. So risk is part of that. And here's the partisan component of risk. When we think about the natural hazards we face, the floods, the hurricanes, tornadoes, wildfires, those are changing right now in front of us because of climate change. And we know that climate change is a partisan issue and it's been highly politicized in our country. I would argue more so than anywhere else in the entire world. Mm -hmm. And we have camps on both sides um, that there's some strong positions on the Democratic and Republican side. And unfortunately, Republicans have taken the position, and they haven't always taken the position about this, that climate change isn't necessarily human uh, caused, and um, that we shouldn't really be concerned about it. And what that has bred is a lot of uncertainty about the science of climate change, and I'm not sure about the research behind it, but I would imagine that it also has brought uncertainty about science in general. And so on the conservative and Republican side, we need to ask ourselves, are we being blinded to some risks that we're actually facing? And politics aside, I would encourage people to think about those sources of information they're drawing on. So are you tapped into local climate and weather information that's um, updated frequently? So um, the flash flood warnings I read uh, for the East Coast in your area were being put out by weather um, sources. Now, politicians didn't all represent those well because they don't always know, but we also have to remember our elected officials who make calls about disasters, whether it's evacuations or other calls, are sometimes concerned about how those will be perceived politically. So we all need to be tapped into these original sources uh, for weather and climate information and, and take a sidestep, step back from the climate change terminology and the, the politics it brings up 
and instead focus on um, the real risks that we're facing so that we can take appropriate actions. Yeah, what do you think is the next step in terms of, we, we often talk about rebuilding Louisiana, but it feels like Louisiana has had so many of these events happen so often. I mean, what, what is next in Louisiana? I, I assume there are families there who, again, have been affected storm after storm after storm. That's even true here in these Appalachian areas, right? That there's a flood and then there's a flood and then there's another flood. So it's complicated, but, but what's next for these folks that have been affected year after year? They, they are gonna have to think about relocating, but I mean, what's happening in Louisiana right now? Do, do you, either of you have family or friends that are being affected by this and, and what are they deciding? I'm from Louisiana. My family has been in Louisiana for many generations. Um, there is no silver bullet solution. And what we're looking at is the state of Louisiana, and I'm sure other states are considering similar solutions, is you need to come at it with a suite of options, like a whole um, list of possible solutions that together might make it a safer location for those that choose to stay because we don't wanna be forcing people out of their homes. That's not you know, an American ideal. That's not safe for people who wouldn't feel safe in another community. So it really needs to be this combination of how can we have public mitigation structures? So think of levees, seawalls, building back marshland that has eroded away in places like Louisiana. But you also can think about how we can fund maybe elevating homes and um, making people feel safer in the homes that they choose to stay in. And then ultimately, there are going to be some areas where people either choose to relocate or might be permanently displaced. And there are going to be programs developed to support these individuals and households to find places to settle where they feel safe and comfortable. But it's, there's not going to be one solution. It's definitely going to be thinking about, um, you know, where do we predict the future hazards will be and how can we address them from multiple angles. And it takes a lot of investment by the government for this to happen. So President Biden's infrastructure bill could be leveraged to help communities with, with dealing with natural hazard risk. What we saw with Hurricane Ida is that the levee system that was rebuilt and really redesigned after Hurricane Katrina, it worked with Hurricane Ida. And the lessons, um, the hard lessons were learned after Katrina how to improve them. So infrastructure is part of that. But when we hear the word infrastructure, particularly in relation to um, the legislation that President, President Biden is pushing, we need to understand it's not just structural things. So it's not just like, a concrete levy that can also be used for restoration projects in areas that will always flood. So you can buy out properties and let them flood. And what that does is absorb the flood waters so that other places aren't flooded. It also can include uh, broadband internet connections for those that need it for that information resource we've mentioned. So infrastructure should be thought of more broadly. And those of us who study disasters and really care about risk um, are definitely looking to this piece of legislation as being a big investment to help future-proof our communities. Well, thank you both for being on the program today. Um, you've given us a lot to think about here in Southwestern Virginia as we look at various communities that are affected by flooding here, but then also turn our attention to the Gulf. 
and how Hurricane Ida has wreaked havoc there. Uh, but as you mentioned, not as much havoc as Hurricane Katrina because some of the things that happened after that event, uh, actually it, it did help and it did work. Um, so thank you again for being a guest on the program and thank you all for listening. As we have been discussing, there is a lot of rebuilding that needs to happen in Hurley, Virginia. If you are looking for an organization to donate to that is making a difference there, please consider donating to the United Way of Southwest Virginia. Their website is unitedwayswva.org. If you would like to make a donation to an organization that is having a direct impact on the families in the Gulf who were affected by Hurricane Ida, consider donating to the United Way of Southeast Louisiana. Their website is unitedwaysela.org. If you missed any piece of the broadcast today, you can catch up on wehcfm.com. Red, White, Confused is also available by podcast.